get it. Monday, August 24th, 2020. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. I am back, although on self-quarantine for 14 days. After being out in today's world, one can never be too careful when thinking about their loved ones. Be that as it may, I hope everyone had a great week outside of podcast land. Got some good news about our podcast here. We have been officially nominated for a Podcast People's Choice Award. It is the longest running premier podcast award in the podcasting space, this being the 15th annual. I totally forgot that we registered. Uh, I guess I was supposed to tell you to go vote a while back before the final round. Well, we made it to the final round anyways. So if you voted for us, thank you because I was totally unaware. And it is now in the hands of the judging round of listeners. Ceremony is on September 30th, and I'll let you know how it goes. Uh, Looking at the podcast, People's Choice Awards, I did notice a couple of things. One, the veteran podcasting community is severely underrepresented in the award show. So if you listen to another veteran podcast, in addition to Born the Battle, and there's some great ones out there, contact them. Get them to register. Nominate them yourself, as it'll help gain visibility to our veteran podcast community. Uh, And there's a lot of well-deserving podcasts out there worthy of those awards and nominations. Also, number two, the federal and other government podcasts are severely underrepped. So much that the Podcast People Choice Awards are considering doing away with the government category entirely. That would leave us without a major category. And I know from a federal government standpoint, there are other podcasts coming up in the podcasting space. There's the Department of State's 22.33 Department of Energy's Direct Current, there is Inside the FBI, Uh, DIA Connections is by the Defense Intelligence Agency. Heck, even the Maine Fish and Wildlife has a podcast. So if that category goes away, none of these podcasts, including Board in the Battle, I mean, maybe we can register for another category, maybe culture. But if government and organizations category goes away and a branded podcast category, if you will, does not show up, we would not have a dedicated home for these award shows which does help in giving these podcasts visibility. But if we want to keep it, one, these shows need to submit, and two, contact the Podcast People Choice Awards and petition to have them keep the category. Because I think there are a lot of podcasts within the federal government and within the veteran community that could benefit from a category like that. Uh, Received a couple ratings, and we also received a review since we've been gone. This one from Ad Jeng and Jeff. Five stars. Outstanding. I was a combat veteran wounded by shrapnel in my back. I now have a titanium back with titanium rods, screws, and cages. I've been disabled since 2004 when I had the surgery at Johns Hopkins University. This is a very informative and helpful podcast, so I'm able to apply for benefits. I still don't know what the outcome is, but at the very least, I, but at the very least, I have been able to apply. Thank you for all the help and information on my benefits. Thanks again, Jeff H. Cons. Jeff, if that was the only review I ever had for this podcast, it's enough for me to know that this has been a vehicle to help you and therefore worthwhile. I hope your application goes well. And if you need to apply for an appeal, 
Remember to refer to the benefit breakdown episodes on appeals modernization in the archives. Also remember, in addition for disability, there are a plethora of other benefits from the VA, like the GI Bill and the VA Home Loan, which includes adaptive housing benefits. Again, thank you for your review, Jeff, and you giving that review does help us climb in the podcast algorithms and allows more of your brothers and sisters to hear the information not only provided in the news releases, but in the interviews. So really appreciate it, and thank you. News releases after a week. Uh, surprisingly, there are only four. First one says, for immediate release, VA responds to COVID-19 with scheduled revisions to electronic health record implementation. After delays due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs recently revised its previous schedule to convert facilities to its new electronic health record capabilities with updated timelines for deployments in August in Columbus, Ohio, and October in Spokane, Washington. All right, home state. After the conversion at these sites, VA will bring other select facilities forward in the 10-year timeline. Think about it. This is a massive undertaking to digitally convert every veteran's health record. That's a massive undertaking. The Electronic Health Record Modernization Program will replace VA's current veteran's health information systems and technology architecture to store patient information and track all aspects of veteran care. The new electronic health record solution will link the Department of Defense's health records to create a lifetime of seamless care for service members and veterans. For more information, go to ehrm.va.gov. This is an incredibly important project. Imagine doing away with the old workflow of having to scan in your health records. Remember getting out, copying your entire health record at the VA office on base, and then carrying around all your paper health records from the military? This will eventually eliminate that. Uh, We will definitely talk about this with them at some point, but it sounds like with the 10-year timeline, we've got time. All right, and now on to a really good story. For immediate release, VA prepares to welcome volunteers back to healthcare facilities. That's awesome to hear. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs announced recently plans to gradually and safely reintroduce volunteers to its healthcare facilities. While volunteers are important to the operation of VA services and programs, most volunteer activities have been paused to prevent the spread of the virus that causes COVID-19, which is understandable. Many of our red vests that you see at the facilities are elder veterans. Individual VA facilities will tailor the reintegration of volunteers based on the facility's operational needs and volunteers' abilities. Volunteers can expect the following safety measures. One, a phased reentry. Volunteers are being asked to return to duty on an as-needed basis while maintaining physical distancing. VA asks that volunteers do not return to the facility unless they have been approved to do so. Again, a lot of elder veterans that, that volunteer. Number two, retraining. Volunteers must complete an orientation and training on VA's policies and procedures. This includes the proper use of personal protective equipment, including face coverings. And finally, health screenings. Volunteers, like staff and patients, must consent to being screened for COVID-19 exposure and symptoms prior to entering the facilities. These actions are being taken to protect the health, safety, and well-being of veterans, staff, and volunteers. No kidding. Makes sense. For more information on this or for more information on volunteering, visit volunteer.va.gov. This is great because I know many of our volunteers, they love coming in and helping other veterans whether it be with navigating through the hospitals or helping them with whatever a fellow veteran needs. And if you are a subscriber to our Instagram, at DEPT Vet Affairs, back in April, one of our volunteers, 89-year-old Ted Morosky, 
gave a great message on our IGTV while we were in lockdown. And I think we actually aired it also in our archives. Uh, actually, you know what? I'm going to re-air it again here on this episode. So without further ado, 89-year-old veteran Ted Morosky. This coronavirus has probably prevented you from doing something. Well, listen to this. That virus has prevented me from my most favorite avocation in my life. 89 years in my life. It's the greatest avocation I've ever had. I've been a volunteer over at the uh, VA hospital at Hines, Illinois for, in the spinal injury department. Been there for quite a few years. Spinal injury, that means everybody that I talk to is paralyzed. And over the years, some of us have gotten to be pretty good friends. This virus caused the VA to say, no volunteers are admitted in, so I can't do that. I can't do my public speaking about the VA and my experience in the, in the Navy. But here's what we can do. You don't have to listen to the whole 10 minutes of my usual talk. Just the last 30 seconds that I tell my audience, I'm going to give you three life-directing tips that will serve you for the rest of your life. Tip number one, every day have some fun. Number two, do not waste time because time flies like the snap of a finger. You're going to be old and saying, where did all the time go? Tip number three is magic. Tip number three. Do something really, really special for someone when you know that person can never, ever repay the favor. Ted Morosky, out. Being 89 years old, Ted may have to wait a little longer as he's probably part of that phased reentry. But I'm glad to hear about our volunteers starting to come back. It's awesome. All right, number three says, for immediate release, VA decreases mail processing time for claims intake. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs recently announced that the Veterans Benefits Administration has improved procedures by incorporating an artificial intelligence solution to reduce the time it takes to process incoming mail from 10 days to just one day. The software reads the mail document contents and automatically routes it to VA employees working the next step of the claims process, which means faster processing of the information veterans send to VBA in support of their claims. On average, VBA receives more than 550,000 pieces of mail per month related to benefits and services. The volume of mail comes from submissions by veterans, surviving spouses, service agencies, attorneys, and claims agents. This mail is often the starting point to initiate a claim or provide supportive documentation for potential benefits and services they may be eligible for, in addition to general inquiries. For more information on this, go ahead and go to benefits.va. And finally, for immediate release, VA partners with OnStar to bring suicide prevention services to veterans with the push of a button. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs announced recently it is partnering with OnStar's emergency services to improve access to suicide prevention resources for veterans. This partnership will offer veterans in crisis the opportunity to be transferred to around-the-clock confidential support via VA's Veterans Crisis Line when they use the emergency services button in an OnStar-equipped vehicle or OnStar Guardian smartphone app. On average, 20 veterans die by suicide each day. We all know this. Through this partnership, VA and OnStar, a wholly owned subsidiary of General Motors, 
will collaborate to provide education and training to VA clinicians and OnStar call center staff to facilitate suicide prevention efforts for veterans. Additionally, VA will provide resources and education to OnStar about military culture and how to determine if a caller is a veteran. Partnerships such as this are coordinated by Veterans Health Administration's Office of Community Engagement, and you can find them at va.gov forward slash health partnerships forward slash index dot ASP. All right, we have a very special guest for this episode of Born the Battle. He is a living OEF Medal of Honor recipient. He is also a former LinkedIn spokesperson for their veterans programs a former Boeing Deputy VP of Sales, and just took an executive position with Microsoft. Pretty incredible to see that transition, and is what attracted me to him in the first place. He is Army veteran, Florent Groberg. Enjoy. I'm going to start recording. Sounds like you're playing Call of Duty. No, I have the headset that looks like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can I call you Flo, Florent? What do you, what do you prefer? Yeah, Flo's good. Flo? All right. Flo, I play Call of Duty, Warzone. And with some of my old military friends, it's how we stay in touch. And I did not know there was a Florent Groberg pack. Yeah. Yeah, there is. Um, we raised, the whole point happened probably eight months ago, This the, the the way the way it came about, I was having a beer with a buddy of mine right before the pandemic really kicked off, and uh, he was working for Amazon. And he said, "Man, you need to, you need to do something with Call of Duty, uh, Call of Duty Endowment." And so, you know, we got in contact with Call of Duty Endowment, and we um, we came up with this concept of creating an in-game character uh, using my kit and my weapon and doing some really cool stuff with it all for charity. And so the whole point was once we reached $3 million for the call of duty, call of duty endowment to help um, their transition services for our veterans and their families. uh, We know we'd we'd pull the plug and I think they were a little shocked. We reached in three weeks. So think about that. I mean, that's the the pack is $9 99 cents. Um, and we made $3 million in just about three weeks to help out our, our veteran community. So to me, it's like, holy crap, I'm in, in, in a weird way, in a video game, you know, a game that I play. Uh, but it's not about really, that's the cool, you know, I smile. But really, the whole purpose behind it was just so awesome. And I can't believe they did it because that's a lot of money on their part to, to put the work into it, to create the character and, and do all that good stuff. Absolutely. So 100% of the proceeds are being used to place veterans in jobs, correct? 100%. I don't take a dime. That was a, that was the deal. I don't take a penny. They don't take a penny. Um, and, you know, I only had to give a few hours of my life. Um, and they put in months and months of work. So they had a whole dedicated team on it. So that was a huge commitment by the Call of Duty Endowment team. And I'm very, very um, impressed and, and humbled by them. Very good. Yeah. You play? You say yeah, you play? I do. Not much. Gotcha. Uh, I play, uh, you know, as much as I can when sure. at night before going to sleep and when my wife's going to bed, but I play. <laughs> you sound just like me. Yeah, uh, we're getting old. You, yeah, <laughs> right, right. We, uh, you, you do Xbox, PS, uh, Xbox, PC? Xbox, Xbox. Yeah, I gotta get, I gotta get your gamer tag afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. I'll send it to you. Word. 
Word. Uh, well, uh, VA's Veteran Day program, which is on all of our social media every day. Um, we also had another veteran that was replicated in Call of Duty, uh, Ronan, uh, otherwise known as Two Lamb. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was our Born the Battle. So, and we have a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week at the end of every episode. So now I know. Now I know going into this this episode, what your Veteran of the Week at the end of your episode is going to be. It's going to be. It's going to be. It's going to be Ronan there. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and I'll have you know, uh, Call of Duty styled a pack after me. There, there is an Iskra operator bundle. Now I know that they were, I did not know that they were going to do a bundle on me. Um, I think they were trying to surprise me and it may not look anything like me. And the character may even be female, <laughs> but the name is all that matters. Um, I was honored. So definitely tell your contacts at infinity ward, uh, tell them, thank you for making an Iskra, Iskra bundle there. That is awesome. Look at that. <laughs> Look at that. That is just, you know, they're smart. They know how to do it. <laughs> they really know how to, you know, how to motivate um, their fed fair and their customers, but also do some really good stuff for our community. Um, and, and I, I'll, I'll say this about infinity ward. I'll say this about the call of duty endowment team. They were very, very uh, professional, but most important, um, you know, they really uh, spent a lot of time looking at the, you know, at the rules and the law and making sure that they didn't break any rules. They didn't affect anything that the military would, you know, push back on or even myself. Um, it was a well done process. Very good. Very good. You know, when that Iskra bundle came out, you know, I've never seen anything, anything with my name on it in a video game. So I had to get it just on principle. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It was awesome. It was awesome to see. Um, so the Army, Navy, and Air Force, a lot of recruiting effort, for better or for worse, has gone into esports. Uh, I think the Marines have publicly said that they won't field an official team, but there, and there's been a lot of press on it lately. Um, it was something that the military didn't pay attention to when I when I was playing Battlefield 1942 back in the day, and I, you know, I think I signed up for a tournament. Um, what's your take about um, military recruiting in in the esports arena? I'm still, you know on the fence about it because I don't know much. I think it's cool. Right. I mean, the cool aspect and the, you know, the concept behind it. Right. Um, I, I, I just don't know what it does for the military. Right. I just don't know what it does for, especially in a time of war. Now, right. now here's the cool other, here's the other part. It's not, I wouldn't say cool other part, but here's the other part. Um, warfare is changing. Like, I mean, it is evolving, it is adapting, and it's, it's, it's you know, it's changing uh, every day. And going yeah. forward, I, I do believe that if there is going to be a conflict, uh, that less human beings will be on the battlefield and more drones and type of, you know, technology will be utilized. And all these guys and gals, uh, you know, will play a part. And so it's yeah. in a weird way it's going to be the type of warriors that we're going to be recruiting you know maybe 10 15 years down the road and now it starts as a video game concept uh team but that's that might be the future of uh, uh, warfare not saying that i know anything that no one else knows that's just a guess uh but look at it the way technology has been evolving and look at it you know what they're utilizing today on a battlefield versus what they utilized not even 10 years ago um yeah. i think it's a pretty clear path but the last thing i'll say about that is you know the military and the army sort of um is trying to figure a way to to recruit and this is a very popular thing to 
uh, for a lot of folks in you know Generation X and and millennials as well. And it's smart. So yeah, I guess I think it's, it's you know, I think it's pretty cool. I mean that's why I I, I just don't I, I don't want to knock it. I, I know a lot of friends have knocked it, saying, "What the hell do we need a, <laughs> you know, an esport team?" I just <laughs> yeah. think it's it's cool, and it's an opportunity for someone to compete and, and and join the team for a couple of years, just like any other specialization. It's where the kids are, and if you're trying to create awareness for the military in a younger generation, that's where they're at. You know, um, it's I think it's better, and I I came from a NASCAR background. I think it's better than putting army on a NASCAR car. I think for exposure, for awareness of what the military is to a younger generation. Um, that's where they're at. So you, you got to go where the kids are at, right? Absolutely. So, um, Flo, you know, we usually kick off these interviews, uh, with a, when and where you decide to serve, but I want for you, I want to go back a little bit further. Um, you didn't grow up in America, correct? You were naturalized from France. Yeah. I grew up in, uh, just, uh, I was born just outside of Paris and lived uh, in the Paris uh, suburbs for uh, the first almost 12 years of my life. Wow. Um, and now your father, he, he's American, right? He is. He's my adopted father. Yeah, he is. He's from Gary, Indiana. Okay. And um, I read somewhere that you didn't speak English until you were 11. Actually 12. I mean, when I moved in, oh. right? So 11, 12 years old, uh, I was in uh, English as a second language in, in eighth grade. So um, I finally made it out of that beautiful course um, and went into regular English in ninth grade. Gotcha. Very good. Um, for you, uh, what was the biggest adjustment moving to America at that age? Well, take take away the language barrier, right? I yeah. think it was just uh, the way of life here. Everything's just more spread out and bigger. And I come from and slower. Everything is such a slower pace. It's unbelievable. You know, I come from a, a place where we didn't need a car right you walked everywhere i walked to school since i was six years old by myself uh Mm -hmm. there was a metro there was you know buses there was tons of people everywhere uh fast-paced city life and you know and if there are vehicles which there are plenty of uh they're little vehicles you know uh, paris style right european style the peugeots and the (laughs) exactly peugeots exactly yeah and uh (laughs) volvos and all those good vehicles and i came here and when we moved here, so it's not like, you know, I, it's unfair the way I tell the story sometimes because it feels like uh, I, that was the first time I ever came to the United States and I'm like, wow, you know, big eyes. I'd, I'd visited the United States a few times, gotcha. uh, but I never paid attention to it the way I did when I moved here, right? It's just different, right? You kind of went from visiting to, to actually like, okay, this is my home. And we moved in, um, we went from where, you know, just outside of Paris uh, to Palatine, Illinois. and Palatine, Illinois, suburbia. And so I'll never forget the house that my, my dad owned and we, we were we had moved in. And I walked outside one morning. And it's just like it's a neighborhood. And I couldn't find a train, couldn't find a bus, couldn't find people. Uh the cars were about twice the size of the vehicles in, in France. Yeah. And F one fifties. Yeah, no kidding. No, right, trucks. I mean, honestly, I don't even think I've, I, I can't, I cannot for the life of me remember seeing a truck in France, like, uh, wow. like, you know, like an F 150 style and like you, you know, a Raptor style, right? I, I, I think, uh, you know, just kind of jumping back in 2009. No, yeah, 2000, no, 2006. 
I um, I saw a Hummer in Paris, and I was not the only one that stopped to just kind of like look at it. Everyone saw like stopped. It was just you just didn't see a Hummer in Paris. It's just so big; it doesn't fit the streets. So it was it was comical. But anyway, <laughs> so I think that was really the the change for me here. It was just the way people like you know operated. Uh, what time you eat dinner? Uh, you know what time you start? You know you start going to school. How, what time school was over? It's just so different completely. Like I went to school at seven a.m. in France, and I was done at five thirty. Then I went to soccer practice wow. or in wow. judo practice. I didn't go home till eight. We didn't eat dinner till eight thirty nine. Right? Think about that. Like that's just wow. that's a late dinner, and that was the way we did it. And I would be in bed by, you know, I do more homework, and I'd be in bed by eleven. Um, <laughs> And that was as a six, seven, eight, nine, ten year old, you know, that was a life. Uh, That's so different than what you hear of like, you know, with Europe with like the four day work week and, and things like that. That sounds well, way more dedicated than than what you normally hear from from a European culture. By the way, things must have changed because there was not a, there was no four day work week. There was a lot of vacation. <laughs> there was a lot of vacation. But the way the school system for us worked, you went to school Monday, Wednesday, you had Wednesday off. Right. So this is probably wow. where people are like, oh, uh, four day work week. Then you went back. But on Wednesdays, I went to the center. So this is where you do. You, it's not just a day off where you do nothing. It's a sporting day. It's an activity day. Um, you know, you, you didn't pay anything. Right. You went to the center and, you know, they will take you uh, horseback riding. They'll teach you how to paint. They'll do all sorts of different activity. And then the other half of the day you play sports you know with your club team and your city team and so you're always doing something you don't just stay home and then thursday friday school days and then half day on saturday right so you're going to you know every other week so you're still going to school on weekends like you know half the month wow uh and so that that's the difference, right? And I honestly think it's the most ingenious thing that the French system could have put together. It's like it's almost it gives half day twice a month for the parents. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> hey, you've worked all week. We're going to give you Saturday morning to do whatever you want. We're going to take the kids. Right. And then after that, they're back to, you know, back at home. Um, but we did get a lot of vacation. I mean, the European system is all about vacation. It's on real. And it's specifically when you're you know, in a professional world today, when you work with organizations out there in Europe and you're like, my gosh, you have like eight weeks of vacation a year or seven weeks. It's crazy. But when you and, work, you work. But when they work, they work. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it depends, right? Um, yeah. they, they, they know how to disconnect too, which is super healthy, super important. Um, and, you know, they do it right, in my opinion. Now, we judge them. But I bet you Japan judges us. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man. Those guys work till they drop. Literally. You've seen, it's you know, I'm sure. Unreal. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, was the American military, was the army something your mother and father saw for you? I don't know. Honestly. I don't think it was a shock. But I think that uh, I always wanted to be either in the military or the FBI. And uh, that's probably because my mom is a, 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 you know, a big fan of, um, you know, mysteries and, and, you know, crime solving books and movies. And so we watch a lot of the those movies. And I don't think I grew up in a stereotypical home where 
you know, you watch PG-13 stuff. I was watching, I mean, she took me to the advanced premiere of Platoon when I was three years old. So that just kind of oh, gives wow. you the background, right? Um, <laughs> right. Gory, uh, you know, blood, sex, all that stuff. I was allowed to watch it my entire life. A much darker movie compared to the to the other military films that came before it. Um, Absolutely. If you look in our archives, we ha- we interviewed Dale Dye, who was the technical advisor. Really? Yeah, yeah. And he kind of has a pretty funny story at the end of the episode. So at every once in a while, we do what's called an after the show show, and and we say, hey, a story, whatever you want. And he told a very funny story at the end of that episode. So if you get a chance, go check out that episode. Oh, I will absolutely. It, it was a, it was about platoon. Um, so do you remember the point to where you made that decision to join the military? Well, I mean, I knew I was going to join the military after my uncle was killed in 1996. So I have an uncle who was. Um, Algerian. So uh, my mom is was born in Algeria, uh, a French colony. Yeah. And then she moved to France when she was 18. And so her whole family and uh, her brothers and sisters uh, were born in Algeria. And so one of my uncles, uh, her younger brother, Abdu, uh, he was in, he was an imam. He was a preacher of the Muslim faith. So yeah. I'd say probably like, because my mom's side of the family is so much bigger than than, than my father is almost 80% of my family is Muslim. Um, I would say <laughs> of those 80%, probably 75% are very bad Muslims in terms of practicing <laughs> because like, like my mom, you know, as in her entire life drinks, drinks alcohol, smokes cigarettes, you know, yeah. cooks pork, eats pork. You know what I mean? Like it's just, but they're, you know, Muslim. That's how, that's the faith that they grew up in. And, you know, they read the Quran and all that stuff. But anyway, but my uncle was not that way. He was a, Wanted to be an strict, yes, yeah, a lot more strict. Wanted to be an imam. He wanted to be a preacher. He really lived by the the book, uh, and he was the most amazing and sweetest person I've ever met in my life. Mm. And so when a uh, that the, the terrorist organization called the GIA decided to show up in the late 1980s in Algeria to take over the government, take over the country, and bring Sharia law to uh, you know a sort of a, I would say a westernized uh, North African country uh, yeah. where. And they, you know, where women went and partied, and men went and partied, drank alcohol. Women wore mini skirts, you know, things like that, right? And I, I think, I think, not many people know that, you know, the history of North Africa. There was a lot of that, yeah. before a lot of the extremism came in, right? I mean, hell, there was a lot of that in Afghanistan in 1970s. Yep. So um, people used to travel to Kabul to go party. It's it's, it's, a, it's a crazy. <laughs> wow. It's not that long ago, right? Yeah. But anyway, that was just the way the world was then. And I mean, there's there's a little bit of that left out there, just no, no not the way it was. And so yeah. that's how my mom grew up. But anyway, my uncle, you know, he was he just he wanted to be an imam. And some people want to be priest, and that's what he wanted to do. And so he went and and he prayed uh, every day, and he went and got was taught um, everything about the book and the history of his of his, uh, of his faith. And you know, and at a young age, he it was I was. A lot of his family members were a little bit jealous because they knew exactly what he wanted to be, and he knew exactly what he wanted to. He knew exactly what he wanted to be. They knew exactly what he wanted to be, and and that was you know it was pretty cool. And I felt incredibly close to him. Uh, he was my favorite person in the world, other than my mother and, mm. and father. And so when this GIA organization came in, he decided to. Uh, 
put the book down in essence and put on a military uniform. And so he joined the Algerian army uh, and he went to fight them because as he told my grandfather, who is a very well-known warrior in Algeria, uh, he told him, he said, listen, these people are perverting our, 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 my book, my religion, our religion. Uh, they're taking parts of the book and, you know, turning it into evil. This is supposed to be peaceful. And, you know, this is my jihad against them. I have to go fight this evil. And, yeah. and that's the part that, you know, breaks my heart when in this country and other countries, people think that, you know, Muslims are, and, or the, or, you know, Islam is all about pain and, and violence and stuff. And that's not what I, I saw from my family. That's not what I saw uh, from Abdu. And uh, I think that's what he was trying to fight against, to be honest with you. And so he gotcha. did. And he joined. He became a commando. And unfortunately, on <clears throat> February of 1986, during a ceasefire, uh, he was, he was, his team was ambushed. He was shot. He was beheaded. He was dismembered. And he was put in, in a box. And he was sent to my grandfather as a warning. And uh, I was 12 years old, about to be 13, a couple months later. And I changed my life. I knew at that point that I wanted to be like him. Um, and by that, I meant I wanted to join the military and I wanted to go out there and eradicate individuals, uh, you know, that wanted to preach evil upon us. I wanted to terrorize us. And, and I guess I kind of became like him. I knew my path at a very early age. That's a, that's, that's a heck of a reason, man. It's a heck of a reason. I don't, I don't know what other thing to say to that. You know, then that's like every reason. Let's flip that. What's the scariest thing that you know we face in terms of evil going forward? Um, I told this to my wife maybe a couple of weeks ago. If I was impacted by an action that happened thousands of miles away, but to a loved one, right? And and yeah. and it really changed my mindset early on. And it really gave me a goal and a purpose and a path. And I followed that path. I was committed to it. You know, of course, 9-11 was a catalyst. Sure. Uh, that was the catalyst. A new adopted country, just been naturalized five months ago. And boom, now the same type of individuals come in and, and, and terrorize um, New York, you know, Pennsylvania, Washington. And I just couldn't. That was just a catalyst. But think Brings about back, how that brought back a lot of, the, lot of those sentiments. Well, I felt that we got, yeah, it got very personal to me, right? Yeah. It's like they're yeah. following me, right? They go after <laughs> my uncle in Algeria. And now I'm here to come after, you know, uh, the people, this great country, this great country that adopted me. No, that's, that's, I felt very personal. And, you know, selfishly, I felt personal. It was personal. But think about that. How will that impact me? Now, flip that and put all those kids who are born in Afghanistan right now. Yep. Or Iraq. But let's go to Afghanistan. And every single day in their lives, their mother and father preach to them how evil we are. Yep. And they don't have another way of being able to analyze the situation and gain our understanding or perspective, right? Of why we're there. They just hear one side of the story. And then tomorrow I kill their dad in a fight. Yep. Absolutely. That's the next generation of dudes that, uh, and, and, you know, uh, that I'm going to have to fight. And the cycle continues. We, we talk about Afghanistan. We talk about Iraq. We could talk about Yemen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cycle, man. It's a never ending cycle. It's just, it's so hard. 
It's so hard. How do you think we break that cycle? Well, the only way you break that cycle is by not fighting them. But, <laughs> you know, yeah. you can't bring education. I, I'm, I, I've heard so many people say we can you know, reform and, you know, take in. How? What are you going to do? How, where are you going to go? Do you, do you think you're going to go to Neuristan and, and, and be able to have the resources and the manpower and the time to, you know, bring therapy in essence to a whole generation of kids? It just won't happen. Yeah. Um, I think the only way it happens is if the country takes the country back and brings, you know, allows education. Right. It's just, you know, and for them to get a different perspective on why, you know, there was a war to get a dinner for them to gain an understanding that, hey, maybe we weren't the bad guys like you thought we were. But that's not going to happen. It's impossible. That's why it's so scary. with You know, these kids have been brainwashed by ISIS. Right. Yeah. At least that group, though, we can potentially identify because we've captured so many of the ISIS folks and, you know, you're, you're still going to have bad guys. I mean, you can take these kids and you can, you know, still teach them. But I can't take I can't do that for a whole country. Um, and there's a hell of a lot more kids in Afghanistan that were born to Taliban fighters than there are ISIS. Uh, yeah. So, you know, the only way you break that is, you know, by not having a conflict, but that's against human nature. <laughs> So. Yeah, and you still got to defend if they and if and if America is attacked, you still got to defend it. You know, hundred oh, percent. I mean, that's why this is one of those things. Now, I, I think the one thing that's going forward, going forward, that's going to be an advantage is I do believe these attacks are going to be coming harder and harder. At least you know the attacks we've been accustomed to uh, because of technology. I think technology is just going to get so much. You know, it just keeps getting better and better and better to identify threats, and our intelligence systems you know, are doing such a good job. Um, but you know, that evil and is still going to be there, man. It's, it's scary. It is scary. The cycle's scary. The continuation of extremism is, is scary. Um, and it's not an easy nut to crack. Now you joined in 2008, right? I did. I joined in 2008. So I t- it took a little bit longer than I expected because I had to renounce my French citizenship and come to find out, I still don't understand to this day why I couldn't join when an interim uh, you know, clearance. Yeah. And instead of, uh, I had to wait. And so the, my, I mean, it might've been my recruiter, a great guy. And so, but anyway, I went to maps and I did my, everything in 2006, 2005, 2006. And they told me that I need to renounce my friend's citizenship to qualify for a top secret clearance. Mm. And so I did, I went to the French embassy. I asked them to renounce my friend's citizenship. That was an interesting conversation. What was interesting about it? Well, you what you know, my recruiter say, why don't you just go to the French embassy and let them know you don't want to be French anymore? I took that to heart, and I went to the French embassy and in Washington D.C. and I walked in. I said, uh, "Hi, my name is Flo Grober, and I'm here to renounce my French citizenship." And the person that I met at the at the front desk, in essence, was like, "Oh yeah, just go down the hall, make a right, take the elevator, second floor, second door on the left, or something like that," right? Yeah. I was like, wow, that's easy. And I walked in and there's this lady and I knocked. I waited a little bit and she come in. I can't, you know, she told me to come in and we had a conversation. I said, I'm here. My name is Lauren Groberg, giving my passport and all that good stuff. I said, I'm here to renounce my friend's citizenship. And so she was super polite and older lady. And she said, well, why do you want to renounce your friend's citizenship? And I told her, I was like, well, I'm joining the army. And um, I, need, um, I need to pledge allegiance to only one 
country. And so obviously being French, that makes it two. And I need to renounce my French citizenship. And so she's asked, then asked, she's like, well, why don't you just join a French army? And <laughs> uh, it was now you got another recruiter <laughs> yeah i know that was like one of those moments in life where you're just like mm, okay think before you respond you know and this woman literally has the power to keep you french so don't insult her or piss her off yeah and so i told her i was like hey you know i appreciate that that uh you know that recommendation but here's the reality i've been in this country for over a decade and my friends are all Americans and my friends are all deployed across the world fighting a common enemy that the U.S. and France has. And I want the opportunity and the honor to go out there and fight with them. If I was living in France today, I would be joined in the French army. That was my little white lie. Ah. You know? And But today I'm here instead. And so I really need this opportunity. And you're sort of my gatekeeper. And so that lady was really taken back by my comments. I don't think she was expecting that type of response. So she was, you know, very, she got a little very, emotional. That was very diplomatic, Flo. 100%. Yeah. Um, and so she signed my paperwork and she said, listen, I'm sending it back to the French government. It'll be in France and Paris. And then she's like, but you will still be French until you receive a letter. Hmm. And I walked out of there thinking that was the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> And I was just starting, I self-doubting myself, I was self-doubting myself, like, man, do I really want to leave a country that makes, like, uh, paperwork, you know, the paperwork process so easy? Like, oh, I'm going to, so that was a really, probably one of the toughest decisions I've ever made in my life. And then I didn't, but I never, (laughs) to this day, I don't think I've actually truly understood, like, what it means. I renounced an entire citizenship. That's crazy to think about it. That is, Um, that is crazy. uh, You know, I broke up with friends. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but um but it wasn't as easy as i thought it was going to be it took 18 months for the french government uh to process my paperwork and send me a letter and so they couldn't join the army until then and i waited and waited and waited and it's not like there was a website saying pending pending no it wasn't like that then you just i called i even traveled to france i tried to you know do everything wow. that i could to um, you know, fast forward the process, and finally, I got my letter. Um, and the the heartbreaking part about my letter is, it took them six months to actually approve the process. It took them another year to actually send me the letter. It's crazy. Wow. So uh, you know, you, you were thinking it was just easy, and and maybe maybe you know they make the paper, and then it took eighteen months. That's that's crazy. Yeah, eighteen months. So while you were in, um, while you were in the army. Give me either a best friend or your greatest mentor. My best friend, Tim Tom, Tom Goodman, Major Goodman today, by far, without a doubt. Not no one there, no one near. Uh, he's uh, we went to you know we used to compete in track in high school. We went to college together, uh, University of Maryland. He did an ROTC. I went OCS route. Um, you know he uh, he caught up. He's a little bit younger. He caught up to me based off. Uh, <clears throat> Based off me waiting so long for my paperwork, yeah. And so we were about, I was about four months behind him, five months behind him, and I was following in his footsteps without, not on purpose, right? We were both infantry, and we both went. Well, he went to ranger school five months prior. I went to ranger school. Uh, I guess uh, I did a little bit better job than he did. That's why I was holding against him. I went straight through ranger school. He recycled one, uh, one phase. 
but he ended up going to Afghanistan in you know, summer of 2009 when I went to, when I started the ranger school. And so him and I, you know, we were close and real close. And so he, we, we chatted and he would give me pointers about different things that I was about to go, go, go through because he had just gone through it. And I graduated ranger school. October, I drive, I, I pack. I mean, I think I have a record. I don't care what anybody says. I have the record for like, you know, clearing a post, specifically a post like Fort Benning and, you know, driving across the country to Fort Carson, Colorado uh, to go start, um, you know, to go sign in so I could deploy because the unit was deployed. Here's the cool thing. Yeah. When I found out where I was going, that was the same unit, at least the same uh, brigade that he was in. So I was like, holy crap, what a small world. So I was super excited. I was like, at least I have my, I have my best, one of my best friends, um, you know, to kind of hang out with. Yeah. And so when, so when I arrived my unit, with a couple of weeks deployed, I realized I was going to be, I was going in the same battalion. It's like, wow, what a small world, same battalion. Yeah. And then um, when I arrived at, <clears throat> for blessing, for blessing, you know, in Afghanistan. So I'm skipping a bunch of steps, right? And yeah. so Fort Operating um, Base Blessing, big base out there in uh, Sun Kunar. Mm-hmm. And Colonel Pearl, the battalion commander of uh, uh, 212 Infantry, told me that I was taking over a Dagger 4th Platoon and I would be camping out Han- uh, Combat Outpost Hanukkah Miracle. I started thinking, like, man, well, I've heard of Hanukkah Miracle. So I didn't know, like, it was a story or whatever it was. And I remember I left uh, that meeting and I went to the mini USO uh, hut that they had there to pick up some socks and some other stuff and make a phone call. Sure. And I went and I remember looking at my email. And guess what? I was looking for Goodman's because uh, I wanted to I wanted to send him a message. And I went to my email. And I went to I went to see where Goodman was, what cop he was at. And guess where he was? Combat Outpost Hanukkah Miracle. <laughs> So think about this. You're one of your best friends from college. You do not plan this. This is all very random. I Fort Carson was not my number one uh, duty station. It sure. wasn't his number one duty station. Not only do we end up at the same duty station, the same brigade, the same battalion, but now we're in the same company in the same little combat outpost as the two platoon leaders. That's amazing. Nothing planned. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't ask for you or nope. nothing. Never. Wow. Didn't wow. ask and make no requests. He didn't have any asking power. He's a lieutenant. Yeah. yeah he's brand, I mean? brand new. Yeah. I was just yeah. thinking like, he's brand new. There's no way he, he would be like, Hey, sir, just got here. Uh, by the way, my buddy's coming in. Yeah. And so I got to go to war with my best friend and it was awesome because it, it just took so much pressure off because I had another peer of mine to go ask question and get support. And he, he, he as well when we need it, but it was just, it made this whole story so much better. Sure. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's great, man. That's uh, you don't, you know, you don't, you don't get that. I don't think many get that opportunity unless you're in like a national guard unit or something, you know? Yeah. Um, so you went to Kunar on two deployments, right? I did. Well, no, um, I was in Kunar first deployment and I was in Nangarhar. I was at uh, Jalalabad, my second deployment. Got you. Um, now you received the medal of honor for actions on the second deployment, right? Correct. For those that have never read the citation or have never have, have never seen anything on it or have never heard it from you. Do you mind running through August 8th of 2012? Yeah, I'll give you, you know, 
a quick background. I wrote a book called Eight Seconds of Courage. So if you want to get more details, don't check it out. But uh, the reason why we call it Eight Seconds of Courage is because it's it was an inside joke between some of the guys and myself that were part of that day. How in eight seconds, everything in your life can change. Uh, your future is completely different. And the future of many other people is completely different. And eight, on August 8, 2012, simple day. My, we're going to the Kunar Provincial Security Meeting with Governor Wahidi. Happened every Wednesday at 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. And um, you know that was probably the third or fourth time in that tour. And we'd been there six months already that we were going. We did not want to. We never let them know when we we're showing up. Uh, we didn't want to create a pattern. But on a specific day, a heavy group of senior you know, leaders, military leaders, as well as civilian leaders, uh, decided that they wanted to attend. And I ran the specialized security detail for the brigade commander. So at the time, it was Colonel Mingus, now Major General Mingus. And my purpose in life was to plan his every one of his missions, every one of his trips around 45 different outstations across six seven different provinces in eastern Afghanistan. And I would coordinate with the receiving units to let them know, hey, this is what he wants to do, the time, place, you know, he's arriving, this is his intent. And if we were going outside a wire, this is what type of security element I needed to support us, right? So I had a team of five of us, six of us, depending on, on, um, on the time period. And... You know, my entire purpose with my team was to protect him and the command sergeant major. So if he went outside the wire, we had, you know, we were the the close quarter or security detail supported by an external party of other soldiers from the actual receiving unit. That was the purpose. That was it. Uh, sort of like uh, in you can compare it to Secret Service protecting, you know, the president or the vice president. Dragon. Yeah. And so on that day, uh, I had a really heavy element. Uh, two brigade commanders, so Colonel Walraff, um, um, 101st uh, Brigade Commander, uh, was also joining us. Three wow. battalion commanders, two Afghan, uh, two uh, command sergeant majors, an Afghan general, uh, two GS-15 State Department individuals. Really, one of them was USAID, and uh, two majors uh, at brigade level: um, uh, Major Gray, Major Kennedy, plus my element of five, and I don't C Corps. Ochart, Baldurama, um, Brink, Mahoney, and myself. My element of six. And I have to always do this counting because <laughs> sometimes we were five, sometimes we were six. No worries. And, and when we landed at uh, Combat Outpost Fias, which was the closest base to the governor's compound, only 1,100-meter movement on foot uh, through the town of Asadabad. And very safe area, right? Relative to Afghanistan, very safe area. Uh, yeah. Nothing had happened there in terms of uh, against U.S. troops in almost uh, a year and a half, two years, in that specific part of where the governor's compound was. Now, we had another base about a mile away, and that got hit a lot for mortars, but that was very different. Yeah. And so when we landed, I did not receive my security element that I coordinated for the night prior. And I was very shocked by that. And that was the first time in a tour where, you know, the receiving unit decided not to give us an external uh, security element. To this day, I don't understand how that's even possible. But long story short, the boss had to go to this meeting with the other leaders. And so 
just like everything you do in the military, you have to be able to quickly adapt and evolve on the spot. Um, plan A never works, right? So you, absolutely. Usually, by you're usually under your contingency plan, and but um, when actions roll on, so I felt a little. That's uh, a stress, <laughs> right? <laughs> the yeah. idea that uh, you know I don't have a fifteen. Uh, secure men element, a uh, 15 security element with me. And so what I did is I started to look around trying to figure out like what I can do while we're starting moving towards the gate. And so a bunch of Afghan national army individuals smoking cigarettes by the gate. So I told my uh, interpreter to go get them and to tell them that they were going to join us. And I put them up front. There was probably like eight to 10 of them. And I told them to spread out and walk to the governor's uh, to walk us to the compound the governor's compound and the reason why i put them up front is because i didn't know them and that shows how they didn't trust them sure uh, keep eyes on them yeah and that tour we we're facing a lot of green on blues and that was afghan uh or afghan national police afghan national army uh, folks that we were training turning on u.s troops so, but if i had eyes on them i was good to go and the reason i asked them to come with us is i wanted to appear bigger Sure. Uh, it was just just an optics piece, right? I didn't care much for them in a combat situation. Sure. And then uh, we, you know, I changed the way we were designed, and so every time we left the wire prior to that tour, you know, we were in a diamond, and I was always at the rear of the diamond. And the reason why it's a diamond, again, do your research, look at Secret Service, and you're going to see the, how they surround the principal, right? So the the person you're protecting is called the principal. And so you have a person to his right or to her right, left, front, and rear. Shots fired, attack, everybody, you, know, you collapse, you put your bodies on top of the principal, and then you drag your principal away from the threat. Hmm. And that's just a you know, game set match there. Yeah. And so on that specific day, I decided to put myself at the front of this, of this, of this diamond, at, you know, because I wanted better eyes on. I put, um, I put, um, um, O-chart in the rear. And I told him, and if anything happens, you grab the boss and you take him away from danger. So, yeah, complete opposite way. So, if I'm going towards the left because there's danger, you take him to the right. And he said, okay. And so, 700 meters into our movement, the two motorcycles came flying in front of us, right, towards the Afghan National Army. Afghan National Ar Army... Um, Lead man actually did a really good job of raising his rifle and screaming in Dari, which forced them to, you know, pretty much crash. And, but that was a diversion. Unfortunately, at that moment, uh, there was a little compound to the left, and that's when the first suicide bomber came out. I, I, I was closest to him, and I, I saw him, and, you know, I couldn't see a weapon. I knew he was a threat, just didn't know what kind of threat. So I started screaming at him and, and, and running towards him. He did a, uh, it's hard to describe. He was walking backwards parallel to us. He did a, uh, you know, 180 degree turn and then 90 degree turn right, right into us. And he was, he never looked at me. He always looked past me, but I knew that he was a major threat. So when I got to him, I hit him with my rifle across the chest while saying some nice things to him. <laughs> then I grabbed him. And when I grabbed him, I realized he was wearing a suicide vest. So the only thing I could think of at that moment was, well, I need to get him away from everyone as quickly as possible, as far away as possible. And so that's when I started dragging him, pushed him, threw him. And he landed on the ground uh, at my feet, chest first. And then I saw him let go 
of something in his hand, which means at the time I realized was a dead man's trigger. Yeah. So he had pressed the bomb and he was just holding on so, so tight. So and if he got shot or if something happened, let go of the trigger, boom, boom goes the bomb. Boom goes the bomb. And that's what happened. You know, he, when he hit the ground, he let go and he detonated. And uh, he threw me 15 feet. I was severely injured. I lost hearing my left ear to this day. Um, I mean, I, I guess I can, I, it's, I, I call it deaf. You know, my left ear is just completely, it's bad. Tracking. Uh, I lost um, uh, part of my left calf, uh, you know, fused my foot, and I had a severe um, concussion. But I lived. Command Sergeant Major Griffin, Major Gray, Major Kennedy, and Reggae Abdel Fattah, the USAID GS-15 individual, did not. So August 8, 2012, in eight seconds, changed my entire life. It changed the lives of four families in, a, in, in, in a, the worst of ways. And it changed, I think, the lives of many other individuals that were part of that day. You know, Flo, in every video that I see uh, you in or any write-up that, that I, I see, you always speak at Command Sergeant Major Griffin, Major Gray, Major Kennedy. And... Altafata and how they relate to the metal that hangs that was hung around your neck. Yeah. It's because it belongs to them and their families. You know, it's individuals who make the ultimate sacrifice. And so the metal to me is an opportunity to be representing our nation. Right? It doesn't belong to me. It's <laughs> it's the medal of honor for Pete's sake, right? It's I'm a courier. Uh, I'm a a representative. I was picked uh, to represent the medal and to wear it with honor and to be humbled by it. And to me, every medal that is, every courier of the medal has a specific story. And my story involves these individuals. And so if I'm going to have a conversation about the medal or my military service, I can promise you that I will bring up the most important people in my story or to this metal and that's them tracking you know there's a lot of medal of honor citations of service members jumping on grenades um you, you know jason dunham for example um you're the first that i've heard of jumping on a suicide vest and surviving with from what i can tell minimal visual scarring what's scarred that we don't see Oh, I think the survivor skills. I mean, I do have a pretty nasty left leg. You know, it's, I just wear pants. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. It's, uh, yeah. You know, it's, 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 it called it, we call it a skeleton. Like just looks ugly, Uh, but it's the probably the, the, you know, the invisible wound, the survivor skill that I've, you know, I went through the PTS that I went through for a long time and I didn't, it wasn't a PTS where I, um, I mean, I couldn't sleep for two years. I just had all. I was on Ambien and Trazodone and all that good stuff. Um, which good stuff. I mean, I hated it, and sure. I don't like pills. Yeah. So, but it was a survivor skill. The feel, the the feeling that you failed them and that you should be dead, and and you want to replace, you know, your life for theirs. And so that was the hardest part. And it should, I call it the dark times. And uh, I went through that in the hospital. Of course, I was influenced also by all the narcotics that were put in my body to deal with the pain sure which made my demons and my my mental demons a lot stronger but 
in essence, I, um, I, I, you know, I faced uh, some really, really difficult internal uh, times, and it really I needed a support system, which which was at the hospital. Thank God, from my peers, my nurses, doctors, but my family, uh, but really from uh, Windy Warriors, who allowed me to find a purpose again in my life, uh, made me realize that. War is ugly. There's nothing fair about war. You could be at 100% best trained, top notch, completely have everything going for in, in your favor, and one straight bullet shows up and kills you or your friend. So it's it's ugly. It's also, you know, like rolling dice at times, right? And, yeah. you know, we do have the advantages. We have a loaded dice. That's what we have with our training and our background and all the assets that we have. But sometimes, even with a loaded dice, it's, you know, you, you, you have the incomprehensible situation of you know you're going to lose a friend and or someone on your team and it's going to impact you and so survivor's guilt what to me was the worst part of it um you're, you're talking about dark times and and how uh, other combat wounded veterans helped you get through it how important was that camaraderie in those times the most important part of it i mean i talk about you know to me the most important part of my life is being a good teammate um, you know, being a good husband, being a good friend, uh, good son, uh, you know, good worker. But really, Nell's essence is making sure that it's, I'm, I don't think about myself first. I think about others. I think about how my actions impact others um, and that I'm there for them. Uh, you know, and so and that because people have been there for me. Were you was it mainly DOD hospitals or have you had VA assistance since you've been out? A lot of VA. I was just at the VA uh, about a month ago. I've had a listen. The only negative thing I had with the VA was trying to get my ratings, and that was not just the VA. That was VA. That was DoD, uh, and that was Walter Reed. And so it just took a little longer than I expected uh, sure. to get my ratings when I was at the hospital. And also, I was impatient. Right, I wanted to get through, move on to the next chapter. So, and there was a lot of wounded warriors, and there was a lot of paperwork and a lot of things, but. Otherwise, I have no issues going to the VA for my my care. You know, if I have an issue with with a caretaker, then you know I will address it. But the VA is a big part of my life, and I'm I'm a huge supporter. And just like just like me, you know, there's always opportunities to improve. But that's just that's like that with everything in life. Yeah, I'm sure you you could say that's like that with the army. That's like that with Boeing. Uh, there's always when you're when you're an entity as large as the VA or some of the some of the other ones that you've worked with, there's always room for improvement, you know. And I think that's fair to say, hundred percent. And you know, I'm part of the, the you know when when service members are transitioning out of their services, their branches, and they're going to they're going through tap. I'm part of the video because I really believe in the process. And also, I you know I'll, I'll say it here, um, a lot of folks think that the VA or other organizations are supposed to do all the work for, for them. You know, sometimes if things are not going right, you probably need to step up and go do something about it. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a lot of us. Hey, and there's, there's a lot of jobs at the VA too. If you want to make yeah, a difference. Absolutely. hundred percent, hundred percent. There's, you know. and I think people forget that there's a lot of volunteer, you know, at the VA. It's a, uh, it's and people really volunteer in their free time and their expertise and their professions to to help us. Um, but you know, yeah, we talked before this. I have ideas of ways that I, you know, we can continue 
helping the VA to grow and 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 be more, um, uh, you know, successful in reaching every single veteran because that's the whole point. That's what the VA wants to do is they wants to provide the exact care necessary to every single individual that put on the uniform. That's their that's their that, I mean that's the big goal, uh, and. They're not, you know, they, no one, people have accused them of taking shortcuts. That's not who they are. They don't want to take shortcuts. Just some things fall through the cracks at times because it's so big and there's so many of us. And also, we're not the easiest of customers. <laughs> that's yeah. the truth. I wasn't personally and we're not. And so, you know, that's another, that becomes another obstacle. But we got to stay positive. If you stay positive, people stay positive. Uh, we we have a way of getting through this a lot faster. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, real quick, going back to the Medal of Honor. You know, when I joined back in '03, there weren't any recipients from OIF or OEF. Uh, and then we we in the Marine Corps got Jason Dunham. Uh, then we had our first living one in Dakota Meyer. And finally, more and more, uh, like yourself, uh, there are more living heroes that are getting recognized with the highest medal we have. Um, and it's not uncommon. It's not an uncommon occurrence to still be li- living if someone receives one now, which I think is great. Is there a bond there with the living recipients? And what is that like? There is. I mean, I think you know, just like anything else, you have clicks and you have individuals that just, you know, get closer with others and versus and there's guys that you just don't really talk to. Wow. But we have a pretty close knit group. There's only 69 of us left now or total. Uh, from all wars, and so you know we're, we're we just lost Ron, which is a, that was a, a t- really really tough one because I thought he was um, one of the one of my favorite people, um, and not just Medal of Honor recipient, just individual. Right? What what he represents, and you know him and the two boys, Miranda, his wife. It's just incredible family and people. So that was a really tough pill to swallow, but he had been fighting stage four cancer for quite a few years now, since I think 2017. Uh, so, but yeah, there's a bond. There is, you have to almost have it. Like you can't, you can't run away from it because you represent such an important piece of this country uh, and, and our military. And you're, you know, sort of uh, intertwined in many different stories and, and, and events and groups. And so um, you, you, you build a, a bond with certain people, but it's just like anything else, you know, you're going to get closer to certain people versus others. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We, and you talk about Ron, we also lost Benny Atkins. Um, he was on the the podcast before he passed away. Ah, Benny was amazing. I love his. I love that guy. He goes, goes like Flo, Flo. Hi. You look good, Flo. I like you, Flo. You're one of my favorites. You know, he probably says that to everyone. But uh, <laughs> Benny, Benny was Benny was important. I just love. I love. You know, at least I'm glad that I got to see him in L.A. in February. Um, so, uh, yeah, COVID nineteen, man. It's it's something else. Ah, oh, he was uh, listening to his episode with Tim. You're the first person. You're the first Medal of Honor recipient I've interviewed. Tim Lawson. He was the one that interviewed Benny. Um, he's the he was the previous host. Listen to his story about still being wanted in Vietnam. You know, <laughs> it's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Now, when you recovered, did you go back to duty, or was it a thing where you were you were retired? No, I was in. I was still in the hospital. I didn't go back to my unit, but I did go serve uh, with a three-letter agency as a as a service member. So, Very good. Very good. Just different. Yeah. Get to get get to live out a different dream, maybe. Right. It was. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah. Uh, when did you leave the service? What year was it? 
2015, in July 23rd, 2015. Okay. So that was the tail end of the recovery of the recession. Um, still a lot of, a lot of, uh, post nine 11 services were out there. Yeah. It's been, it's been quite a, a post-military journey for you. Started at LinkedIn, you were a spokesperson and you were responsible for a, you know, based on the reading I did, you were responsible for a tailored job search tool for LinkedIn for veterans transitioning out of the military. What would you consider the greatest accomplishment be during your time there at LinkedIn? The fact that we were able to reach an, you know, a, outstanding number of veterans uh, through their platform. Uh, we did so quite a few different campaigns, but, um, and, and when I say reach a number of veterans is we, we put together uh, some materials to, to, you know, talk about, Hey, PTS and mental health. We talked about, you know, the reality transitioning. Uh, we work with some incredible individuals who are entrepreneurs or, or, you know, out there uh, working with from out, some outstanding organization that we put their stories and blasted their stories to give a little um, background about the real real opportunity once you transition out uh, that an infantryman can go work for a tech company you know that an engineer can go work for the financial department right whatever it is that to, that a individual can go out there and start their own business and what the resources are um, you know building the network the importance of building a network and yeah. things like that. So we told a lot of stories, some you know outstanding, successful vet- veterans to kind of motivate the troops to know that, hey, you serve your country honorably. And once you get out, right, it's not that the grass is greener on the other side. It's just that you have an ample amount of opportunities that you probably did not believe you could, you know, you could touch. And that was a, a big mission statement for us that, that we found to be successful. The whole point was to for folks to get on the network, on the platform, to join a network, uh, to connect. Uh, you know, utilize all the resources out there for them to tell them about successful stories so they get motivated and to really open their eyes on the opportunities. And then the other piece is to, to for non-military uh, folks, organizations, recruiters, CEOs, you know, uh, hiring managers to see that there is so much opportunity uh, when you hire a veteran. For your organizations, you know, you might have yeah. not, we might not have the specific educational background or or even professional experience that you're looking for, but we have a very different, unique type of experience that's going to allow that individual to come in, evolve, adapt at a quicker rate, a faster rate, more fast learners, and really we're mission and team centric, which meant that you know we could really come in and have an impact on the company. It's about taking a shot on us, and it's the most calculated shot you will ever take because we usually. Uh, we'll come back and, you know, return the investment, you know, Tenfold. three, four times. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of intangibles, a lot of intangibles. Absolutely. Um, now you made an impact in Boeing um, and now you live in my home state in Washington, go Hawks. What I find interesting is that you start out as a director of veterans outreach, community engagement in the, in the you know, and, and you were living here in DC. Yeah. And, you know, I've interviewed a lot of veterans that have been in similar roles from Coke Industries to Walmart, Amazon, Microsoft. A veteran employee dealing with veterans in the company, it's its something that uh, you see a lot, either with recruiting or retention or educating their non-veteran employees on veteran culture. But you've since spun off from that. Uh, you became the chief of staff for commercial airplanes, which sounds unique. Um, and now you're the deputy vice president and business director for sales and marketing for Russia and the central regions, uh, Central Asia, you know, Turkey, all the stands, caucuses, regions, right? Right. Is that my tracking? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a huge role. And, and that's right. not a pivot. That's not a pivot I've seen with many veterans. How did it happen? How were you able to move on into these roles? 
Yeah. Uh, and what's the role now? What overall, what is it? Is it keeping customers happy or coming up with ways to attract uh -huh. new customers or is it coming up with ways to attract new customers? Well, I'll go to the first one, right? I'll go to, you know, I came in, obviously, uh, the idea of I was the LinkedIn mission and I had a commitment that I wanted to give back to the veteran community. Boeing was sort of a fluke how I came into it. I came in to talk to have a meeting about the Medal of Honor Foundation I was a part of to raise more funds for it. Uh, next thing you know, I, I was it was a 45-minute town hall session with 300 people. I was very um, blindsided by this. Mm. Uh, it wasn't Boeing's fault. It was Ron Rand, <laughs> who ran the Medal of Honor Foundation that set that up uh, without telling me. Okay. Uh, anyway, but that, that led to a job where Tim Keating, who runs all government affairs for um, Boeing, uh, said, hey, I love your mindset. I love your mission. Let me please come do it with us. And I said, no. He's like, let's have a conversation again. I went to his office and he said, I'll, I will give you uh, all the resources that you need. This is with 20,000 veterans in the Boeing company. And this is what it means to us. And I, uh, I gave it a shot. And one of the best, 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 best and best decisions I've ever made, honestly. Um, it was, uh, the company was, was amazing. Um, I, uh, I came in with a role and within literally, I would say probably the first, yeah, I would say probably the first week. Um, I, I, I wanted, I, I told Tim Keating that I wanted the company to be the presenting sponsor to Warrior Games in Chicago. And I asked for $2 million and a dedicated team for 10 months to support not only the, the, the our mission, but the Navy and the city of Chicago. Um, and what's the result? We put 20,000 fans at Soldier Field. Obviously, this was very much pre-COVID days. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, my buddy John Stewart was our MC. The majority of the service chiefs or secretaries were in attendance. You know, we had over 250 different athletes from, you know, different nations, not just the U.S. And most importantly, we had so many different VSOs that were part of the week-long, you know, events to, to support the community. And so like that, in a week, the first week there, I'm asking for $2 million and all those resources and give them to me. And he wow. followed through. It was fun. And we did a lot of good work, you know, USO Pathfinder program, you know, and, and all that good stuff. but. That's that was just a, a, a part of my life, and I'm a competitive individual. I'm a, I, I believe I consider myself a businessman, and I knew that I didn't always want to be known for. I didn't want to be known for just a veteran guy. Hey, you serve your country, you did this. I wanted to go out and make a name for myself in the business world, and so the opportunity to become chief of staff was presented. Um, they asked me to do it. At first, I told them, "Yeah, you guys must be crazy. I have no experience with commercial airplanes. I don't know anything about them." But it was a challenge, and um, yeah. that's who I am. I love challenges. So I took it, and I got to work for one of the most brilliant minds I've ever worked for in Kevin McAllister, uh, the former CEO of Boeing Commercial Airplanes. And for two years, we traveled the world. And after that, uh, you know, and I was put in positions that I've never been put in, never been put in before. Uh, I got to truly get an understanding of the of uh, the prowess and, and, and the power and the importance of U.S. manufacturing. Um, you know, here and also globally. And so it became an, a huge opportunity for me to, to take the next step into the, you know, the professional world and business world. And then now I, I, I run, um, uh, I'm the business director, deputy vice president for, you know, Boeing commercial sales and marketing for the Russia and Central Asia uh, place, which means, you know, we have a bunch of sales directors that are trying to sell airplanes and, and manage our customer relations uh, in that specific region. And I, um, 
I help them accomplish their mission. You know, I'm part of the leadership team. So I, you know, I work with them with customers. I work with our sales team, our marketing team, our legal team, our uh, communications team, um, you know, all the way up to the CEO and, and, and the board to make uh, deals come through, you know? So every day we're working on deals and every day we're working on saving deals and every day we're working to, you know, make sure that we continue building a relationship with our customers. But that's will be ending next Wednesday because I'm, uh, you know, no one knows about this yet. And so I think by the time this comes out, it'll be, you know, it'll be known, but I will, I am moving to Microsoft. Uh, Are you? Um, yeah. So, wow. yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I got this opportunity popped up and they, they found, they wanted me to support them in their, you know, global cloud infrastructure, Azure and, and I get an opportunity now to, to go out there and join the Microsoft team and, uh, work with their global cloud infrastructure uh, organization, Azure. And, and, you know, I'm super excited because it's, it's in my wheelhouse. I get to go work with the U S government, you know, work with the intelligence community. Uh, I get to partner up and, and go support customers around the world, you know, other foreign governments, as well as, you know, uh, strategic partners. And it's just, you know, something I'm incredibly excited about, but in the end, all this is because of a foundation and background from the military. You know, I got this job at Boeing as well as, you know, as well as this one at Microsoft, specifically Microsoft, because of my, you know, because I grew up overseas, because I got to deploy, because I understand difficult, different cultures, I speak multiple languages. Um, and, you know, I have experiences that are, are going to be relatable. And so, but in the end, it's the foundation that I received in the military and the training that I received in the military and the mindset that he created uh, that's really going to play uh a big, a big role into uh, my next uh, opportunity. So super excited. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Absolutely. I love, I love getting, uh, getting, uh, you know, dropping hot takes on the podcast here. That's, that's awesome yeah. to hear. Um, well, when you get over there, you know, the military affairs team talk to us, give, give a shout out, give a hello to, to Danny Chung, former guest and also my former CEO at the defense information school. So outstanding. Well, that's, that's great. What, what got you? So you're kind of going back into the DoD a little bit, kind of going back into contracting out here in, in in DC. But you, I mean, you were able to step away from a military arena for a while. What was the biggest? What advice would you have for for ones that that may want to do the same thing? Well, I'm not a one trick pony. That's one, and I, uh, you know, we got like anyone else. I have multiple interests, and I'm not I'm not scared to take on a challenge. And so, and every, every, like this new role in Microsoft, every, every, every one of these opportunities is something that's, you know, a massive challenge internally. Um, and it's exciting. It's going to be hard and I'm going to work my butt off. And so I'm not afraid for a challenge and not afraid to fail either. So it's, that's what got me through these. And, you know, it's just like joining the military. It's just, it was very different at the time. So not afraid to start something new. Flow. What is one thing that you learned in service that you carry with you today? Love. And it's just, you know, love for others. I think that's probably the biggest one. I never understood what the power of love was. And power of love is you're willing to put your life on the line day in, day out, night in, night out for someone else. And that you think about them before you think about yourself. And um, that's one thing about service that it made me a, it brought um, empathy. Uh, and it also brought, um, uh, you know, the real understanding of 
what I'm willing to do for others because they mean the world to me. And so it's probably another answer that most people give. Uh, no, but that to me, no, is, it's, not. it's a very important, it's an, it's an important way of looking at things. You're the first one that's actually said love. Um, a lot of, a lot of it is sense of self, sense of purpose, attention to detail. But no, you, you said that a lot of people may ever have say, say that no, man, you, you're the first person that's actually said love. Flo, is there, is there a veteran nonprofit or individual whom you've, you've worked with or whom you've had experience with, whom you like to mention? Yeah, Jared Shepard with Warriors Ethos. Um, they they are an outstanding organization out there in Reston, Virginia, uh, who take in. It started with uh, special operators and you know transitioning special operators, specifically Wounded Warriors at the time, and giving them the resources and tools to successful transition. You know, work on your resume and network, interviewing skills. He's put a lot. He's hired or given a lot of internships to these folks, uh, to include myself over the years. But he's always been one of the most dedicated individual, former uh, army guy himself, sniper uh, turned, um, you know, IT genius uh, who who gives back so much. I'm part of his board, been part of his organization since 2013, and uh, they're doing so much good stuff. And now, you know, obviously we've grown and reached. And so, you know, you don't have to be in special operations. You don't have to be in all in that part of the world to be a part of his organization. So uh, where's Ethos and he does a lot of good work with Walter Reed folks right now. So, Very good. Very good. Flo, we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything else that I may have missed, though, uh, or that I didn't bring up that you think it's important to share? If you are still in the military and you're a young officer, the best advice I can ever give you is go out there and have a frank, honest, direct, transparent uh, conversation with your NCOs. Because the greatest lesson I've learned in the military on the professional side um, was the understanding that it's never about me. It was never about my rank. It was never about my pride or my ego. It was about the team. Um, and that I had so much to learn from everyone. And one of the most important person in my military career background was Corey Staley, my first platoon sergeant. And he guided me, mentored me, taught me how to be the most effective leader. And that's something that I, um, I want people to, to take on. And I use that mindset now in everything that I do. Um, I don't. I don't like being called boss. Uh, if I'm a boss, I don't. I just want to be called teammate with flow, right? And that's the way I call everyone around me, my teammates, because we all have something to share. We, but most importantly, we all have something to learn from each other. My grandfather served in World War II. Spending time with him were the best memories of my life. I became a physician at VA because of my grandfather so I can help others like him. I can't imagine working with better doctors or a more dedicated staff. I'm fulfilling my life's mission with the help of my team and thanks to these veterans. I'm proud to be a doctor at VA and proud to honor my grandfather every day. Search VA Careers to find out more. I wanna thank Flo for taking the time to talk with us here at Born the Battle. And I hope to see him online in Call of Duty Warzone. For more information on Florent, he's a guy that you can find with a quick Google search, Florent Groberg. Uh, as a matter of fact, with him and his new job, he'd probably want me to say Bing. So, quick Bing search. Our Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is provided by VA's Veteran of the Day program. Every day, our social media team honors a veteran with a write-up and a graphic on all of our social media platforms and on blogs.va.gov. You could submit a veteran you know by emailing newmedia at va.gov.
This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is Army Veteran to Lamb. He is a Special Forces soldier who inspired the character Ronin in Call of Duty Modern Warfare. Tu Lam was born in Saigon, Vietnam in December of 1984, shortly before the city became under the control of communist North Vietnam. Lam's grandfather attempted to flee Vietnam and take his family on a boat to America, but had to be rescued by a Russian supply boat. After witnessing many of their relatives' murders, Lam's mother brought the family to America in 1979. They were part of the three million refugees that left Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, to escape communist rule following the Vietnam War. Growing up in Fayetteville, North Carolina, Lamb wanted to become a Green Beret, as his uncle and stepfather before him. The day after Lamb graduated high school in June of 1993, he went to basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia. Then in November of the same year, he completed airborne and ranger school and joined a long-range reconnaissance company. Lamb was a member of their amphibious reconnaissance team, gathering intelligence that would lead to direct action operations. During this assignment, he conducted operations across Central and South America. Then in February of 97, he was selected to attend the Special Forces Qualification Course. Lamb graduated from Q Course in 98, becoming a Green Beret shortly before his grandfather passed away. Lamb's first assignment was with the 1st Special Forces Group in Okinawa, Japan. His first mission was to remove landmines that had been dropped by American forces in Laos and Vietnam during the Vietnam War. The goal of this mission was to make it possible for the children living in Laos to be able to play safely. In 2016, Lamb retired from the United States Army as a Master Sergeant after 22 years of service. Over the course of his career, Lamb deployed to over 20 countries, including war zones and counterterrorism operations in the Philippines, Iraq, and Libya. Following his retirement, Lamb provided tactical hand-to-hand and weapons training to major police departments, military units, and specialty teams. Lamb also inspired the character Ronin for the video game Call of Duty Modern Warfare. The creator of the game, Infinity Ward, reached out to him because of his expertise in martial arts, so they could capture his hand-to-hand and weapons combat movements. He used his expertise to contribute his finishing moves and commando-style tactics to his character in the game. In addition to his movements, his face and body were scanned to complete the character creation. Army Veteran to Lamb. Thank you for your service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcasting app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, RallyPoint, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care.
2010 Afghanistan, we PSYOPs decided to have this brilliant idea of creating these business cards to give to the local Afghans that in case the Taliban ever showed up in their village to give us a call. And we put our translators' um, little Nokia cell phone numbers on there. And so for like the first three days, the thing kept ringing. Um, for the, whoever could read uh, in that village would keep ringing. So they, the Afghans had an idea that maybe they would, um, if they kept telling us that the Taliban were coming, even though they weren't, that they would think that we're cooperating, that they're co we would think that they're cooperating, and then we would just give them more stuff, fuel, retaining walls, you know, build a mosque, whatever it is. Yeah. So it was the most brilliant, stupid idea I've ever been a part of. But one specific night, they called, they were screaming, they're like, their Taliban are here, the Taliban are here. And we actually do believe the Taliban showed up. So I decided to, you know, spin up my troops and we left and we went out there to this village in Shige village, I believe it was, uh, probably like five minutes you know, drive. And then Tim Tom, my best friend, decided to join us and with a couple of his guys. And so it's midnight and we're out there walking around that village. And there was this tiny little like footbridge, right? I'm talking about like five feet maybe right you cross over this uh, trench and i went through it and i fell in you know water up to my chest oh, and so man. you know and you know i have my nods and piss and i start to smell it and it smells terrible long story short when my guys try to give me a hand up he's like holy crap sir you're in you're in doo-doo and i fell in their pile Literally. Oh. And so I was furious. They wouldn't even help me get up out of there. They're like, I'm not touching you. You know, they're laughing and they're like, but they're like, this is disgusting. You are, you went swimming and doo-doo and all that good stuff. And so I finally like, I, you know, one of them, you know, helped me up. They didn't want to put me in the trucks and Goodman. They're like, they're now they're deferring to Lieutenant Goodman, my, my best friend, who's like, he's not getting in the truck. So I told them, I said, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to freaking, I'm going to start shooting at every one of these vehicles, if you, unless you put me in my vehicle. So I got in my truck, and when we arrived back to base, I dismounted my vehicle. I got completely naked. <laughs> I gave my gear, my weapon to one of my privates, and then I went through the talk. I took my right, my, my clothes, my uh, uniform, and I went to uh, the fire pit, and I threw it in the fire pit. <laughs> and I went into the talk, butt naked, walked through it, gave my report. No Taliban, everyone's safe and accounted for. And I walked out. First sergeant looked at me like, what is wrong with this dude? And then I went straight to take a cold shower. Um, I've never been so mad in my life. Like, it was just, it wasn't funny to me. But it was just another day in Afghanistan. So <laughs> it's funny <laughs> now. Hey, you're looking back. Yeah. You're looking, <laughs> I walked in and gave it's report like, butt, butt naked. Yeah, I was like, fuck it. I don't give a shit. There was no women at the time, so good. I wouldn't probably wouldn't have done it. I don't know. Actually, my, my I was just so mad. I was just disgusting. Like it was just disgusting. And I had a private that, that didn't want to help me out. I had him clean my gear uh, for like ten minutes, and I came in. I just took my back and I cleaned it myself because I can. I didn't trust him to clean the right way. Anyway, no, that story. That's my story.